You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos, and you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. This week, Father Paul takes the opportunity of our questions to stress the difference between the Hebrew terms sodiq and yakah. I am delighted to introduce Father Paul on the Bible as Literature podcast, Tarazi Tuesdays. From Platonic categories, we would think prophet must be a good guy. Not only is Abraham a prophet, but it's even the Lord himself who says he's a prophet. And then Abraham shows himself to take the wrong turn time and time again. Can you help us understand when our urge is to say it must be a good guy? How do we understand what a prophet is supposed to be if this is what one looks like? Uh, Again, that's the trouble. Let me take some time here. Let me begin with Sadiq. Ask anyone, Sadiq, which is translated righteous, although people hear it in the English, righteous is from right, which is law, legal, and yet for them, he's a saintly man. Ask it. I did it every year in my classes. Okay. What's a righteous? A righteous is a saintly man, a good man, a correct man. That is not so. Righteousness is a dabar, a matter of fact. Okay? If your cardiologist tells you, I don't want you to smoke because of your heart condition, while he is smoking, you have no business to remind him that he is smoking. Well, number one, he knows that. Number two, he doesn't have a heart condition. And number three, perhaps he's fed up with his wife and children and he wants to die. That's none of your business. The dabar is for you. The prophet speaks for you, not for himself. And we see this in all the prophets, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel. I mean, let's go for these three, you know, and you have a gradation. I like it. Very powerful. In the first one, Isaiah argues with God, until when are you going to punish these people? And God said, until everything is completely dilapidated. Keep quiet, Isaiah. Then, with Jeremiah, as I presented, God learned his lesson. When Jeremiah started presenting his excuse, but I'm a young man, he said, do not worry. I'm going to put my words in your mouth and you spell them out. And at the end of the book, Jeremiah is presented to us, if you like, as an other Moses or a pre-Moses, if you like that. He asked everybody to go to Babylon or remain in Jerusalem, but not go to Egypt, and guess what? He ends up in Egypt. And you are already in Matthew 23. Listen to what they say. That does not mean that I ask you to do what they do or what they are doing. Now, this extreme 
is found in the book of Ezekiel, where you have two technical knockouts. Number one, the whole thing is given already in a scroll that is written. So Jeremiah, for instance, could have slipped, mispronounced a word and so on that he didn't have correctly in his mouth. In the case of Ezekiel, no. You have a book, you read it aloud. And later, God tells him, you do it. And it is none of your business if they hear or not hear. You just say it and you don't say anything out of your mind. Later, the other prophets are criticized for saying what they perceived God had said. That's what I like about the book of Ezekiel and I call him or it the father of scripture. Nothing is left for exegesis, let alone eisegesis. Nothing. You just say it and it is not of your business to wait to see if they are going to listen to you or not because this is not why I sent you. I sent you to speak my dabar to the people. And I'm not talking about the theological dabar of the patristic scholars. No. Which means these words that are in the book, you have to say them. If this is not an extreme, then what is? So obviously, and your question is valid and valuable, that once you hear the word prophet, the first thing is to wait and go ahead, or if you know the other books, to check on them, and this is what you find. The value, the personal value is of no import. And let me go back to Paul, since I quoted him twice here. This is where he does not make the mistake that people try to make today. So you mean the prophet is better than the speaker in tongues, or the speaker in tongues is a more powerful sign, you know, and you have the discussion between Orthodox and Bora again. They are losing their time because everybody is interested in their me, 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 me. Paul says, no. Number one, as I told you, if another prophet start to speak when the first prophet is speaking, we're not in Western Europe and America. Well, do not interrupt. No, he's going to interrupt. You keep quiet. It doesn't matter. You'll have your time to speak because the word is not yours. It's not your propriety. But let me go further. He's very careful. He said, the prophet is preferable only because he does not need an extra person to translate. But if you have a translator for someone who speaks in tongues, because the one who speaks in tongues says a hymn for consolation and so on, you have it in the text, by all means, let him speak, because ultimately we need to upbuild the church, not the individual. And I make fun of that in my books about upbuilding the individual. Let's hear it in Greek. Ikozomi, to build a house, 
That's what ekodomi means. You need many stones. So the house you're talking about is made of different stones. So the Bible technique does not allow this philosophical jargon that is used by every human being around it on the street. I'm building myself. This is oxymoronic to build yourself. You cannot have a building with one stone. Except, I know you retort already, a statue. There you go. But scripture doesn't like statues. Because even the statue needs a house to preserve it and cover it. Come on, friends, let's be serious. So your question is very important. And we have to talk about that and repeat it. God is not interested in each and every parishioner, as we keep hearing time and again. No, he is interested in his congregation, his ecclesia the temple of the spirit, the totality, the household. Who thinks and talks like this? A Roman pater familias and a shepherd is not to worry about each and every lamb. I know, I know the story of Luke, but let's not go into that. I have my answer and I think I said it in one of the podcasts. It is the preservation of the flock that is why the suffering servant is presented not only as a lamb, but as a you. And in Hebrew, you is Rahel, which is Rachel. Here again, the original is of the essence. Rahel. And I discuss this lengthily in my book. He is a lamb but a lamb who is a Rahel, a you that gives birth to many other righteous. And you could already hear the connection to the last two verses of this chapter, the importance of the progeny. But the Bible very early tells you that the progeny can be through the word of God which is the word of promise. Later I shall show you that RSV translates very often as God had said into as he promised, understanding it in function of the total story. But again, the original is very important. It's a word from God. And the word of a manager is always a word of promise because he gives you an order to do something, which means it didn't happen yet. But we're on the way, and God gives birth through every word that comes out of his mouth, the bread of life. and so It's a total picture of what matters ultimately. The congregation, the humankind, and we shall see it in chapter 21, where the nations are in God's purview, and not only Israel. Actually, not at all Israel. It's the nations. In verse 16, you touched on this term but didn't go into detail, and it caught my attention because the phrasing in Hebrew is curious, the way it literally translates. The word is yakah, 
but the actual literal translation of verse 16 in the Hebrew is, Behold, it is for you a covering of the eyes. So my question is, what is your take on this expression, a covering of the eyes, and why do you think in this text, in this place, this word, yakah, which you mentioned is not typically used, why was it used to express what seems to be a legal declaration of her righteousness? A covering of the eyes is a literary expression. The English is vindication in the eyes of all. In other words, that God would not let them see what is the truth regarding you in the story that Abraham speaking of you as a sister is a lie. Notice how it starts. Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. And people are hearing him. So he's asserting this and that which means I could have taken you but I did not. So everyone will not be able to charge you with anything. That is the cover of the eye. They will not see that you did something wrong. And the last one stresses that fact. And in the eyes, if you like, of everyone, Notice at the beginning you have in Hebrew the covering of the eye to everyone that, which means in the eyes of everybody. And the text uses the nifal, which is the passive form of the verb that means to vindicate, to give judgment, to argue with someone in a legal dispute. I mean, the connotation of yakah is still legal, but it is connected to the debate. Whereas Sadiq, as I explained time and again, is the verdict. Okay, so that would be the difference between the two. In the debate regarding you, the people will have cover on their eyes regarding this matter that may hurt you. So yakah would be the first step in a legal setting towards declaring someone sadiq, righteous or unrighteous. So in a way, it's more powerful that even in the debate, there will not be an issue regarding you. That would be the bottom line of 16. It's very interesting, and I don't know how the Arabic translation works. I haven't studied it, but I'm just looking at the word here that's used in Tyndale. It's fa'un difti. Unsifti. Oh, very good. Very good. Thank you for the Arabic. Okay, I'm going to use you. I said, Father Mark says Arabic is important, so I wash my hands. <laughs> Ansafa in Arabic is a verb whose root is nusf, which is half. And thus, you split, really, the situation. You see into it, in between, 
the left and the right. And we use it in Arabic. When your judgment is correct, you say about him ansafa, about you ansafta or ansafti. And unsafti is the passive. So it's a literal translation. You will be dealt with correctly. That would be the word unsiba. But again, you notice that it backs what I said. It refers to the actual debate of the matter. Whereas the root siddiq, hmm, sadiq, sadaqa, has to do with the verdict. Okay, I hope I made myself clear that ansafa you are referring to the dealings of the jury of the judge that they dealt with by taking into consideration both parts. Remember, it means half, 50-50, looking at this and that. And uh, it backs what I just said, that even in the debate, Hence, to go back to your original question, that it's a cover on their eyes not to take into consideration something that in the discussion we eliminated. Like in a court of law, the people will remember, like a, an eyewitness will see that Abimelech did not touch Sarah, gave her her due for the misunderstanding, and took up the wording of Abraham by referring to him as the brother. Which means Abimelech was not ill-intentioned because Abraham told him he was the brother, and yet Abimelech, just to settle this, not leave any possibility for debate regarding Sarah. Notice the importance here is that the addressee is Sarah, that she would not be put in a bad position. In Hebrew, the normal meaning of this would be reproved. It usually has a negative sense. But since it seems like in this context, she is acquitted of any kind of wrongdoing, which goes along with the covering of the eyes. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes, yes. Yakah has this meaning. I was just explaining the use of ansafa in Arabic. And I link them through the fact that both are linked to the debate during the trial, whereas saddiq has to do with the verdict, the result. Meaning that verse 16 is pushing the issue by saying, it will not be debated. And you could see the covering of the eyes. It will not be an issue of debate. How about that? So there are two levels. Number one, I agree totally. That's what yakah means. But Father Mark asked me about the Arabic, and I'm saying the Arabic was well chosen because the technical meaning of ansafa is that it refers to the action connected with the debate 
that leads to the result. Meaning, bottom line, I mean, it sounds like this if you want to be here. Do not worry about anything. I settled the matter that even in a court of law, there will not be an issue to be discussed. Okay, if you can make your own translation and put it like this, and in the footnote say, per tarazi, I would have no problem. Again, as an aside, you see how you keep asking my Arabic and the basic knowledge of Semitic languages and how they work. I have it, and, uh, you know, if I look under Yakah, I would see, argue out together, and then turned out to be in the right, be vindicated. That's Genesis 20. But the Hifail has reprove, reproach, but then you have give judgment, settle quarrels, arbitrator, determine, assign. Now, notice all these English renderings reflect a debate regarding the matter, whereas the root has to do with the outcome. So the text is saying that Abimelech is saying to Sarah, do not worry at all. It is not an issue. How about that? That's what he's saying in a nutshell. There will be no case against you. At any rate. Remember, don't have to solve everything because if we solve everything, we won't have other podcasts. Thank you very much, Father Paul. Thank you very much. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.